26. Fingers. His legs are encased either in white ribbed cotton stockings, or that peculiar kind of gator eclept kixies. His feet know only one pattern shoe. The ankle jack or hilo as it is sometimes called, resplendent with Dan Martin, or the no less brilliant, Warren, genius of propriety. We have described his tail before that index of the mind, that idle phrenologists, his skimple, we beg pardon, we mean his head, round, and rosy as a pippin, it stands alone in its native loveliness, on the heap of clothes beneath, Tom is not a low man, he has not a particle of costermeurism in his composition, though his discourse savors of that peculiar slang that might be considered rather objectionable in the salons of the elite. The bell which he has the honor to answer hangs at the gate of the West End livery stables, and his consequence is proportionate. To none under the degree of a groom does he condescend a knot of recognition with a second coachman he drinks porter and pearl a compound of beer and blue ruin with the more respectable individual who occupies the hammer cloth on court days. Tom estimates a man according to his horse, and his civility is regulated according to his estimation. He pockets a gratuity with as much ease as a state pensioner. But if some unhappy white should, in the plenitude of his ignorance, proffer a sixpence, Tom buttons his pockets with a smile, and politely, begs to alleviate it till it becomes more, with an old meerschaum and a pint of tolerable sherry, we seat ourselves at our window, and hold many unimaginative conversation with our friend Tom, sometimes we are blessed with more than ideality, but that is only when he unbends and becomes jocular and noisy or chooses a snug corner opposite our window to enjoy his ocean confound that phrase, we would say his indolence and swagger, a pound to a hayseed again the bay, hello, that's Tom, yes there he comes laughing out of, box four, with three others all first coachmen, one is making some very significant motions to the pop boy at the, ram and radish, and, lo, Ganymede appears with a foaming tankard of ale, Tom has taken his seat on an inverted pail, and the others are grouped easily, if not classically, around him. One is resting his head between the prongs of a stable fork, another is spread out like the Colossus of Rhodes, whilst a gentleman in a blue uniform has thrown himself into an attitude a low crib, with the facetious intention of letting daylight into the whittling department of the pot boy of the ram and radish. Tom has blown the froth from the tankard, and as he elegantly designates it, pent his name in the pot. A second has looked at the maker's name, and another has taken one of those positive draughts which evince a settled conviction that it is a last chance. Our friend has thrust his hands into the deepest depths of his breeches pocket, and cocking one eye at the aforenamed blue uniform, asks, Will you back the bay? The inquiry has been made in such a do if you dare tone, that to hesitate would evince a cowardice unworthy of the first coachman to the first pier in Belgrave Square, and a leg of mud and trimmings are duly entered in a greasy pocketbook as dependent upon the result of the derby, the son of Tros, Ferganimig, is again called into a requisition, and the party are getting, as Tom says, as happy as Harry Stockracky, I've often heard that chap mentioned, remarks the blue uniform, but I never seed no one as knowed him, no more did I, replies Tom, though he must be a fellow such as us, up to everything, all the coachmen cough, strike an attitude, and look wise, now here comes a sort of chap I despises, Remarks Tom, wanting to a steady-looking man, without encumbrance, who had just entered the yard, evidently a coachman to a pious family, see him handle a hoss, smear smear like these waxing a table, nothing varminty about him nothing of the sort of thing spreading himself out to the gaze of his admiring auditory, but I suppose he's full with slow cattle, and that's a consolation to us as can't bear them, 
and with this negative compliment Tom has broken up his conversation. I once knew a country ostler by name Peter Staggs he was a lower species of the same genus a sort of compound of my friend Tom and a wagoner the delf of the profession. He was a character in his way, he knew the exact moment of every coach's transit on his line of road, and the birth, parentage, and education of every cab, hack, and draught horse in the neighborhood. He had heard of a main comb, but had never seen one, he considered a shilling for a feed perfectly apocryphal. As he had never received one, he kept a rough terrier dog, that would kill anything in the country, and exhibited three rows of putrefied rats, nailed at the back of the stable, as evidences of the prowess of his dog, he swore long country oaths, for which he will be unaccountable, as not even an angel could transcribe them, in short, he was a little, varmenty, but very little, we will conclude this, little history, with the epitaph of poor Peter Staggs which we copied from a rail in Swatham churchyard. Epitaph on Peter S. Agages. Poor Peter Staggs now rests beneath this rail, who loved his joke, his pipe, and mug of ale. For twenty years he did the duties well, of ostler, boots, and waiter at the bell. But death stepped in and ordered Peter Staggs to feed his worms, and leave the farmer's nags. The church clock struck one. Alas, twas Peter's knell, who sighed. I'm coming that's the ostler's bell. Peace to his manes, a hint for politicians, if you won't turn, will, as the mill wheel said to the stream, why did not Wellington take a post in the new cabinet, asked Dickie Shale of O'Connell, they there sheen, replied the head of the tale, the duke is too old a soldier to a lean on a rotten stick, Lord Morpeth intends proceeding to Canada immediately, the object of his journey is purely scientific, he wishes to ascertain if the fall of Niagara be really greater than the fall of the Whigs, a pro and con, when is peel not peel? When he's candy ed, galvanism outdone. We have heard of the very dead being endowed, by galvanic action, with the temporary powers of life, and on such occasions the extreme force of the apparatus has ever received the highest praise. The syncretic march of mind rectifies the above error with them. Weakness is strength. Fancy the alliterative littleness of A. Stevens and A. Selby, as the tools from which the drama must receive its glorious resuscitation. News for the SYNCRDICs, extracted from the Stranger's Guide to a London, Bedlam, the celebrated receptacle for lunatics, is situated in Street George's Fields, within five minutes' walk of the King's Bench. There is also another noble establishment in the neighborhood of Finsbury Square, where the unhappy victims of extraordinary delusions are treated with the care and consideration their several hallucinations require. Peel, regularly called in, at length. Peel is called in, in a regular way, being assured of his quarterly fee. The state physician may now, in the magnanimity of his soul, prescribe new life for Moribund John Bull, whether he has resolved within himself to emulate the generous dealing of kindred professors of those sanative philosophers, whose benevolence, stamped in modest handbills, crieth out in the street, exclaiming, no cure no pay, we know not, certain we are, that such is not the old Tory practice. On the contrary, the healing, with Tory doctors, has ever been in an inverse ratio to the reward. Like the faculty at large, the Tories have flourished on the sickness of the patient. They have, with false staff, turned diseases to commodity, their only concern being to keep out the undertaker. Whilst there's life, there's profit, is the philosophy of the Tory college. Hence, poor Mr. Bull, though shrunk, attenuated, with a blister on his head and cataplasms at his souls, has been kept just alive enough to pay, 
and then his patients under Tory treatment the obedience of the swallow. Admirable. Excellent. Cried a certain doctor we will not swear that his name was not Peel. When his patient plumped to a dozen empty files. Taken them all. Eh? Delightful. My dear sir. You are worthy to be ill. John Bull having again called in the Tories. Is worthy to be ill. And very ill he will be. The tenacity of life displayed by Bull is paralleled by a case quoted by Alivia that naturalist speaks of a turtle that continued to live after its brain was taken from its skull, and the cavity stuffed with cotton, is not England, with spinning Jenny Peel at the head of its affairs, in this precise predicament, England may live, but inactive, torpid, and fit for all healthful exertion, deprived of its grandest functions paralyzed in its noblest strength, we have a Tory cabinet, but where is the brain of statesmanship, now, however, there are no Tories, oh, no, Sir Robiardi Peel is a conservative, Lindhurst is a conservative, all are conservative. Toryism has sloughed its old skin, and rejoices in a new coat of many colors, but the skin remains the venom is the same, the rectile that would have struck to the heart the freedom of Europe, elaborates the self-same poison, is endowed with the same subtlety, the same groveling, tortuous action, it still creeps upon its belly, and wriggles to its purpose, when adders shall become eels. Then will we believe that conservatives cannot be Tories? When folks change their names unless by the gracious permission of the Gazette they rarely do so to avoid the fame of brilliant deeds. It is not the act of an oversensitive modesty that induces Peter Wiggins to dub himself John Smith. Be certain of it. Peter has not saved half a boarding school from the tremendous fire that entirely destroyed Ringworm House. Peter has not dived into the Thames and rescued some respectable attorney from a death hitherto deemed by his friends impossible to him. It is from no such heroism that Peter Wiggins is compelled to take refuge in John Smith from the oppressive admiration of the world about him. Certainly not. Depend upon it. Peter has been signalized in the hue and cry, as one endowed with a love for the silver spoons of other men as an individual who, abusing the hospitality of his lodgings, has conveyed away and sold the best goose feathers of his landlady. What then? with his name ripe enough to drop from the tree of life, remains to a Wiggins, but to subside into Smith, what hope was there for the well-known swindler, the posted pickpocket, the callous heart, slug brain Tory, none, he was hooted, pelted at, all men stopped the nose at his approach, he was voted a nuisance, and turned forth into the world, with all his vices, like ulcers, upon him, well, Tory adopts the inevitable policy of Wiggins, he changes his name, he comes forth, curled and sweetened, and with a smile upon his mealy face, and placing his felon hand above the vacuum on the left side of his bosom declares, whilst the tears he weeps would make a crocodile blush that he is by no means the Tory his wicked, heartless enemies would call him, certainly not, his name is conservative, there was, once, to be sure, a Tory in existence, but he is dead, and mailed in his chest, he is a creature extinct, gone with the wolves annihilated by the Saxon monarch. There may be the skeleton of the animal in some rare collections in the kingdom, but for the living creature, you shall as soon find a phoenix building in the trees of Windsor Park, as a Tory kissing hands in Windsor Castle. The lie is but gulped as a truth, and conservative is taken into service. Once more, he is the factotum to John Bull, but when the knave shall have worn out his second name when he shall again be turned away look to your feather beds. Oh, John and foolish, credulous, leather-neared Mr. Bull Beecher and count your spoons. Can it be supposed that the loss of office, 
that the ten years' hunger for the loaves and fishes endured by the Tory party, has disciplined them into a wiser humanity? Can it be believed that they had arrived at a more comprehensive grasp of intellect that they are ennobled by a loftier consideration of the social rights of man that they are gifted with a more stirring sympathy for the wants that, in the present iniquitous system of society, reduce him to a little less than pining idiocy, or madden him to what the statutes call crime, and what judges, sleek as their ermine, preach upon as rebellion to the government the government that, in fact, having stung starvation into treason, takes to itself the loftiest praise for refusing the hangman a task for appeasing justice with simple transportation, already the Tories have declared themselves, in the flush of anticipated success, here at the Tamworth election denounced the French Revolution that escorted Charles X with his foolish head still upon his shoulders out of France, as the triumph of might over right, it was the right the divine right of Charles the sacred emperor, yet dropping with the heavenly oil brought by the mystic de for Clovis, had bestowed the privilege to bag the mouth of man, to scourge a nation with decrees, begot by bigot tyranny upon folly to reduce a people into uncomplaining slavery, such was his right, and the burst of indignation, the irresistible assertion of the native dignity of man, that shivered the throne of Charles like glass, was a felonious mighty rebellious, treasonous potency the very wickedness of strength, such is the opinion of conservative peel, such the old Tory faith of the child of Toryism. Since the Tamworth speech since the scourging of Sir Robiardi by the French press Peel has essayed a small philanthropic oration. He has endeavored to paint and certainly in the most delicate watercolors the horrors of war. The Premier makes his speech to the nations with the palm branching his hand with the olive around his brow. He has applied arithmetic to a war, and finds it expensive. He would therefore induce France to disarm that by reductions at home he may not be compelled to risk what would certainly jerk him out of the premiership the imposition of new taxes. He may then keep his corn laws he may then securely enjoy his sliding scale. Such are the hopes that dictate the intimation to disarm. It is sweet to prevent war, and, oh, far sweeter still to keep out the Whigs. The Duke of Wellington, who was to be the moral force of the Tory cabinet, is a great soldier, and by the very greatness of his martial fame, has been enabled to carry certain political questions which, proposed by a lesser genius, had been scouted by the party otherwise irresistibly compelled to admit them. Imagine, for instance, the Marquis of Londonderry handling Catholic emancipation. Nevertheless, should the follies of the wise, a chronicle much wanted be ever collected for the world, his grace of Wellington will certainly shine as a conspicuous contributor, in the name of famine. What could have induced his grace to insult the misery at this moment, eating the hearts of thousands of Englishmen? For, within these few days, the victor of Waterloo expressed his conviction that England was the only country in which the poor man, if only sober and industrious, was quite certain of acquiring a competence. And it is this man, imbued with this opinion, who was to be highly as the presiding wisdom the great moral strength the healing humanity of the Tory cabinet. If rags and starvation put up their prayer to the present ministry, what must be the answer delivered by the Duke of Wellington? Ye are drunken and lazy. If on the night of the 24th of August the memorable night on which this heartless insult was thrown in the idle teeth of famishing thousands the ghosts of the victims of the Corn Laws, the specters of the wretches who had been ground out of life by the infamy of Tory taxation, could have been permitted to lift the bed curtains of Apsley House. His Grace the Duke of Wellington would have been scared by even a greater majority than ultimately awaits his fellowship in the present cabinet. Still we can only visit upon the Duke the censure of ignorance. 
He knows not what he says. If it be his belief that England suffers only because she is drunken and idle, he knows no more of England than the Icelander in his sledge. If, on the other hand, he used the libel as a party warfare, he is still one of the old set, and his crowning carnage, Waterloo, with all its greatness, is but a poor set off against the more lasting iniquities which he would visit upon his fellow men. Anyhow, he cannot he must not escape from his opinion, we will nail him to it, as we would nail a weasel to a barn door, if Englishmen want competence, they must be drunk and they must be idle, gentlemen to rise, shuffle the cards as you will, the Duke of Wellington either lacks principle or brains, next week we will speak of the Whigs, of the good they have done of the good they have, with an instinct towards aristocracy most foolishly, most traitorously, missed, Q-punches pencilings number IX. Royal Nursery Education Report Number 3, Who Killed Cock Russell, a new version of the celebrated nursery tale, written expressly for the Princess Royal, Who Killed Cock Russell, I said Bob Peel, the political eel, I killed Cock Russell, who saw him die, we, said the nation, at each polling station, we saw him die, who caught his place, I for I can lie, said Turnabout Stanley, I caught his place, who'll make his shroud, we, cried the poor from each union door, we'll make his shroud, who'll dig his grave, cried the corn laws, the fool has long been our tool, we'll dig his grave, who'll be the parson, I London's bishop, a sermon will dish up, I'll be the parson, who'll be the clerk, Sithorpe, for a lark, if you'll all keep it dark, he'll be the clerk, who'll carry him to his grave, the chartists, with pleasure, will wait on his leisure, they'll carry him to his grave, Who'll carry the link? Said Watley. In a minute. I must be in it. I'll carry the link. Who'll be chief mourners? We. Shouted dozens of out of place cousins. We'll be chief mourners. Who'll bear the pall? As they loudly bewail. Both O'Connell and Tail. They'll bear the pall. Who'll go before? I said old Cupid. I'll still head the stupid. I'll go before. Who'll sing a psalm? I Colonel Percival. Oh. Peel. Be merciful. I'll sing a psalm. Who'll throw in the dirt? I said the times. In lampoons and rhymes. I'll throw in the dirt. Who'll toll the bell? I said John Bull. With pleasure I'll pull. I'll toll the bell. All the wigs in the world fell a-sighing and sobbing. When wicked Bob Peel put an end to their jobbing. Transactions and yearly report of the H-O-K-H-A and Kunis Literary. Scientific. And Mechanics Institution. Collected and elaborated expressly for. Punch. By Tiddledy Links. Esquire Khan, seconds and editor of the Peckham Evening Post and Camberwell Green Advertiser. Previously to placing the results of my unwearied application before the public, I think it will be both interesting and appropriate to trace, in a few words, the origin of this admirable society, by whose indefatigable exertions the air pump has become necessary to the domestic economy of every peasant's cottage, and the light and beer shops, optics and outdoor relief, and daguerreotypes and dirt have become subjects with which they are equally familiar. About the close of last year, a few scientific laborers were in the habit of meeting at a jerry in their neighborhood, for the purpose of discussing such matters as the comprehensive and plainly written reports of the British Association, as furnished by the Athenium, offered to their notice, in any way connected with philosophy or the Bell's Letters, the numbers increasing. It was proposed that they should meet weekly at one another's cottages, and there deliver a lecture on any scientific subject, and the preliminary matters being arranged, 
the first discourse was given, on the advantage of an air gun over a fowling piece, in bringing pheasants down without making a noise. This was so eminently successful, that the following discourses were delivered in quick succession, on the toxicological powers of Coquilles indicus in stupefying fish, on the combustion of park palings and loose gate posts, on the tendency of out-of-door spray piles to spontaneous evaporation, during dark nights, on the comparative inflammatory properties of lucifer matches, phosphorus bottles, tinder boxes, and congraves, as well as incandescent short pipes applied to hay in particular and ricks in general, on the value of cheap literature, and intrinsic worth by weight of the various publications of the Society for the Confusion of Useless Knowledge, the lectures were all admirably illustrated, and the Society appeared to be in a prosperous state, at length the government selected two or three of its most active members, and dispatched them on a voyage of discovery to a distant part of the globe, the institution now drooped for a while until some friends of education firmly impressed with the importance of their undertaking, once more revived its former greatness, at the same time entirely reorganizing its arrangements, subscriptions were collected, sufficient to erect a handsome turf edifice, with a massive thatched roof, upon timber common, a committee was appointed to manage the scientific department, at a liberal salary, including the room to sit in turf, and rush lights, with the addition, on committee nights, of a pint of intermediate beer, a pipe, and a screw, to each member, gentlemen fond of hearing their own voices were invited to give gratuitous discourses from sister institutions, a museum and library were added to the building already mentioned, and an annual meeting of Illuminati was agreed upon, amongst the papers contributed to be read at the evening meetings of the society, perhaps the most interesting was that communicated by Mr. Octavie Stiff being a startling and probing investigation as to whether Sir Isaac Newton had his hat on when the apple tumbled on his head, what sort of an apple it most probably was, and whether it actually fell from the tree upon him, or, being found too hard and sour to eat, had been pitched over his garden wall by the hand of an irritated little boy. I ought also to make mention of Mr. Plumicrom's narrative of an ascent to the summit of Highgate Hill, with Mr. Maltor's handbook for travelers from the bank to Alison Grove, and, a summer's day on coming common, Mr. Tinhunt has also announced an attractive work, to be called, Hackney, its manufactures, economy, and political resources, it is the intention of the society, should its funds increase, to take a high place next year in the scientific transactions of the country, led by the spirit of enterprise now so universally prevalent, arrangements are pending with Mr. Purdy, to fit up two punts for the Shepherdong expedition which will set out in the course of the ensuing summer. The subject for the prize essay for the Victoria Penny Coronation Medal this year island, the possibility of totally obliterating the black stamp on the post office queen's heads, so as to render them serviceable a second time, and, in imitation of the learned investigations of sister institutions, the Copper Jinx Medal will also be given to the author of the best essay upon the existing analogy between the mental subdivision of invisible agencies and circulating decompositions to be continued, inauguration of the image of S.H.A.K.S.B.R.E., at the Surrey Theatre, be still, my mighty soul, these ribs of mine are all too fragile for thy narrow cage, by heaven, I will unlock my bosom's door, and blow me forth upon the boundless tide of thought's creation, where thy eagle wing may soar from this dull terrain mass away, to a yonder empire in vault-like rocket sky to mingle with thy cognate essences of love and immortality, until thou burstest with thine own intensity, and scatterest into millions of bright stars, 
each one a part of that refulgent whole which once was emmy, thus spoke, or thought for, in a metaphysical point of view, it does not much matter whether the passage above quoted was uttered, or only conceived by the sublime philosopher and author of the tragedy of Martinezzi, now being nightly played at the English Opera House, with unbounded success, to overflowing audiences, these were the aspirations of his gigantic mind, as he Saturday on last Monday morning, like a simple mortal, in a striped cotton dressing gown and drab slippers, over a cup of weak coffee, we love to be minute on great subjects, the door opened, and a female figure not the tragic muse but Sully, the maid of all work, entered, holding in a corner of her dingy apron, between her delicate finger and thumb, a piece of not too snowy paper, folded into an exact parallelogram, has this paragraph been paid for as an advertisement, printer's devil, undoubtedly, education, a letter for you, sir, said the maid of all work, dropping a reverential curtsy, George Stevens, Esquire took the dispatch in his inspired fingers, broke the seal, and read as follows, Sir Theodore, Sir, I have seen your tragedy of Martinezzi, and pronounce it magnificent, I have had, for some time, an idea in my head how it came there I don't know, to produce, after the Boulogne affair, a grand inauguration of the statue of Shakespeare, on the stage of the Surrey, but not having an image of him amongst our properties, I could not put my plan into execution. Now, sir, as it appears that you are the exact ditto of the bard, I shouldn't mind making an arrangement with you to undertake the character of our friend Billy on the occasion. I shall do the liberal in the way of terms, and get up the gag properly, with laurels and other greens, of which I had a large stock on hand, so that with your popularity the thing will be sure to draw. If you consent to come, I'll post you in six feet letters against every dead wall in town. Yours, W.I.L.I.S. Jones. When the author of the magnificent poem had finished reading the letter he appeared deeply moved, and the maid of all work saw three plump tears roll down his manly cheek, and rest upon his shirt collar. I expected nothing less, said he, stroking his chin with a mysterious air. The manager of the Surrey, at least, understands me he appreciates the immensity of my genius. I will accept his offer, and show the world great Shakespeare's rival in myself. Having thus spoken, the immortal dramatist wiped his hands on the tail of his dressing gown, and performed a pasuel as the accurates, after which he dressed himself, and emerged into the open air. The sun was shining brilliantly, and Phoebus remarked, with evident pleasure, that his brother had bestowed considerable pains in adorning his person. His boots shone with unparalleled splendor, and his waistcoat will omit the remainder of the inventory of the great poet's wardrobe and proceed at once to the ceremony of the inauguration at the Surrey Theatre. Never on any former occasion had public curiosity over the water been so strongly excited. Long before the doors of the theatre were opened, several passengers in the street were observed to pause before the building, and regard it with looks of profound awe. At half-past six, two young sweeps and a sand boy were seen waiting anxiously at the gallery entrance, determined to secure front seats at any personal sacrifice. At seven precisely the doors were opened, and a tremendous rush of four persons was made to the pit. The boxes had been previously occupied by the Dramatic Council and the Syncretic Society. The silence which pervaded the house, until the musicians began to tune their violins in the orchestra, was thrilling, and during the performance of the overture, expectation stood on tiptoe, awaiting the great event of the night. At length the curtain slowly rose, 
and we discovered the offer of Martinezzi, elevated on a pedestal formed of the cask used by the celebrated German cub runner a delicate compliment. By the way, to the genius of the poet, on this appropriate foundation stood the great man, with his august head enveloped in a capacious bread bag, at a given signal, a vast quantity of crackers were let off, the envious bag was withdrawn, and the illustrious dramatist was revealed to the enraptured spectators, in the statuesque resemblance of his elder, but not more celebrated brother, William S.H.A.K.S.P.R.E. At this moment the plaudits were vigorously enthusiastic, thrice did the flattered statue bow its head, and once it laid its hand upon its grateful bosom, in acknowledgement of the honor that was paid it. As soon as the applause had partially subsided, the manager, in the character of Midas, surrounded by the nine muses, advanced to the foot of the pedestal, and, to use the language of the reporters of public dinners, in a neat and appropriate speech, deposed a laurel crown upon the brows of Shakespeare's effigy, thereupon loud cheers rent the air, and the statue, deeply affected, extended its right hand gracefully towards the audience. In a moment the thunders of applause sank into hushed and listening awe, while the author of the magnificent poem addressed the house as follows, My friends, you at length behold me in the position to which my immense talents have raised me, in despite of those laws which press so fatally on dramatic genius, and blight the budding hopes of aspiring authors. This commencement softened the hearts of his auditors, who clapped their handkerchiefs to their noses. The world, continued the statue, may regard me with envy but I despise the world, particularly the critics who have dared to laugh at me. Groans. The object of my ambition is attained. I am now the equal and representative of Shakespeare. Detraction cannot wither the laurels that shadow my brows finish on that opus. I have done. Tomorrow I retire I.